and welcome to Talking Aussie Books, a weekly podcast bringing readers and writers of Australian fiction together. I'm Claudine Tanellis. As an avid reader and passionate advocate for Australian fiction, I make it my mission to spotlight local talent. So if you're looking for your next read or simply want to learn more about the Australian literary scene, this podcast is for you. Grab yourself a cuppa, sit back and relax. This episode is brought to you by HarperCollins Publishers Australia. Bonjour tout le monde. Today I am thrilled to welcome Vanessa McCausland back to the podcast to talk about her divine new novel, Dreaming in French. Year after year since first meeting Vanessa back in 2020, I marvel at her gift for evocative and unforgettable storytelling. First through the lost summers of Driftwood, then the Valley of Lost Stories, again with the beautiful words, and now Dreaming in French. Not only is Vanessa a warm, lovely person and supportive member of the Australian writing community, but Vanessa has come to be known for her beautiful words, and perhaps it's no coincidence that this is one of the titles of Vanessa's books. Her descriptions of scenery, emotions and characters are stunning. So noteworthy, in fact, that I often underline them as I'm reading. Such is the appeal of Vanessa's writing that an excerpt from The Beautiful Words was picked up for last year's HSC paper. Much to her surprise, the novel was also shortlisted for last year's Sisters in Crime David Awards. Vanessa's latest book, Baby, Dreaming in French, is no less stunning. Released earlier this week by HarperCollins, this is an evocative, achingly beautiful and gut-wrenching story that will not be easily forgotten. A book that has already received rave reviews and blurbs from the likes of literary giants such as Natasha Lester and Hannah Ritchell. Congratulations, Vanessa. Thank you, Claudine. Thank you so much for that beautiful introduction. And thank you also for hosting my launch on Wednesday night. Claudine stepped in for Ali Lowe, who was sick, and it was such a magical time with Claudine. She was so gracious and wonderful in helping. So thank you. Again, my absolute pleasure. And thank you for asking me to step in. I feel so blessed to have friendships with so many beautiful people like you, Vanessa. And it is is just an honour to be sitting beside you talking about this beautiful book. Oh, thank you. So, Vanessa, how are you feeling now that the book has finally made its way out into the world? feels pretty pretty wonderful, actually. This feels really different to um, releasing the beautiful words because that was during the Omicron pandemic wave. So I didn't get to do any sort of events or any sort of in-bookstore signings or anything like that. And so with Dreaming in French, I have sort of beautiful events and going into bookshops and it just feels it feels completely different and really celebratory I guess and I get quite nervous putting books out there but I just made a concerted effort to sort of be joyful and try and celebrate this and not focus too much on the anxiety. Fantastic now this book marks a departure from your other books in that it is set in France so I wondered, Vanessa, if you could tell us why you decided to set it there and why Ile de Ré in particular? So Ile de Ré is a beautiful island off the southwest coast of France. It's well known in France, but probably not globally all that well known. The Parisians and the French go there for the summer. And I actually went and lived there myself at the age of 19. I jumped on a plane, much to my mother's horror, I imagine, because it was the 90s and there was no mobile phones. Or maybe it was the early 2000s, you know, it was before anyone really had a mobile. And I went to go and work as an au pair there. And it's just so stunning. It's set on the Atlantic coast, so it's quite wild. 
but it's also quite sort of summery and hot in summer, you know, summery in, in the summertime. But there's sort of a moodiness about it as well. There's these beautiful pine forests. You can ride bikes from one end of the island to the other. It takes about two hours to traverse the entire island. Beautiful beaches, vineyards, all these little fishing villages, and all the um, architecture is sort of heritage listed. Well, not heritage listed, but there's a code where they all all the buildings have to be whitewashed with shutters that are either green, blue, or maybe sort of greyish. And so there's this incredible aesthetic coming from Australia, where all the houses are you know, higgledy-piggledy, it's just like a little tableau, the entire place. And so having lived there for quite a few months, I just, and at that age where I'd never been overseas before, not by myself anyway, um, it kind of really embedded itself in me and in my subconscious. And also you read a lot of books set in Paris, and I do love a book set in Paris, but I guess I just thought this could be a really interesting sort of departure from that and a, a new look into France and a different part of the French culture that might not be quite as well known. Speaking from my own experience, reading this book was a revelation in terms of discovering a place that I'd never heard of before. And speaking as a Francophile, I've heard of lots of different regions of France, but never really heard about Ile So thank you for that. That was absolutely beautiful. My pleasure. Now, for those who haven't read it yet, Vanessa, can you tell us a little bit more about the story? So Saskia Weil is a woman living with her family in Sydney and she gets she receives a letter from a French solicitor telling her that she's inherited half of a villa on, on this tiny island off the southwest coast of France called Ile de Ré. And she returns to this island with her family where she spent a summer at the age of 19 as an au pair and it was here that she met Simone Durant, a French heiress, and Felix Allard, a salt worker. And Simone has left half of this beautiful but sort of crumbling old villa by the sea to Saskia and half to Felix, who is now a, a sort of reclusive French film star living on the island. She's also left a um, manuscript written in French, which Saskia must read and translate in order to understand why Simone has drawn her back to this island that has been haunting Saskia for 26 years. So it's written in the uh, present in Saskia's voice as she returns to the island and it's also written in the past in Simone's voice as we see this summer unfold with Felix, Saskia and Simone in the 90s. And Saskia must discover what really happened in the past in order to save what is most precious to her in the present. Yeah, absolutely beautiful book, as I've said earlier. So, Vanessa, when did you first conceive of the idea for Dreaming in French? Was there a particular spark of inspiration that set you down the path of writing Saskia and Simone's story? So I was writing at the end of the pandemic and I, I think I... I'd always known that I would probably write a book about France because I have always loved it. And I think as an author, you are sort of looking for these touchstones in your imagination or in your passions that you know could sort of sustain the energy for a whole book. And when you've, this is book number four, and so I'm sort of thinking, okay, well, I've explored all these 
special places to me and things that mean something, you know, emotional issues for me. What can I explore next? And so it was sort of, I think, inevitable that I was going to go down the French path. But the actual spark for this came from this walk that I do on the foreshore of the Northern Beaches near Manly. And I do it almost every day. And I guess I was just trying to think of what on earth I was going to write about next. And there's this sort of beautiful, it's not really even beautiful, it's more crumbling, but big old house on the water behind this high stone wall and um, sort of being entangled by vines. And it sort of captivated me a little bit. I was wondering you know, does anyone even live there? Has that just been abandoned? Like, what's the story there? And then on the pavement nearby is this name Felix that someone had obviously inscribed when the, the, you know, pavement was being made. And I just, it just sparked something Felix in this house. And I started playing around with this idea and voices and came up with the idea of Saskia and Felix. And I was sort of writing it in Sydney, but it wasn't taking off. It just didn't feel right or alive. And then I conceived of the idea of, well, I could set it on Ile de Ray, even though I hadn't been there for like 20 something years. But I thought, okay, I'll just try. And then I was like, okay, well, there's this other voice that maybe I could do as a French woman. And I just started writing that and it just, it was just there and her voice was very strong and I was like, oh, okay, there's something here. And so that's when it all kind of started to come together and I started exploring it. But as we've already spoken about, but I might speak about again, it, it, it hasn't been a smooth ride with this book. There were challenges in writing it about France and in a French voice. Yeah, indeed. We will come back to that topic in a little bit. But I wanted to ask you a bit about the French dialogue because there's quite a bit of French dialogue in the book. Mm. And I wondered if that was something that you were keen to include and why. As a commitment to writing this book, I signed up for an Alliance Francaise course. And in a way that kind of kept me going because I was like, okay, I'm doing this course. I need to commit to this book. And so the language, you know, I hadn't studied French for many years and I was fluent when I lived on the island. I studied French all through school, HSC and at uni. I used to be able to write essays about Camus and Marguerite Duras in French. I don't know how, but, you know, it's pretty hard learning a language. So I just decided... I guess that I would incorporate some of this language that I was sort of renewing for me through studying it in the manuscript. But I think I was, I've been very careful to contextualise it. So if there is some dialogue and a little bits in French, I think, I hope that it's very easy to understand what they're talking about. There's either someone directly translating in English afterwards, or there's so much context that you know what it's about. But it was pretty challenging because, you know, my French grammar is not all that these days. So I got a a journalism friend whose husband is French, Stéphane, to double check it all. And there were a lot of mistakes. But he very kindly and um, diplomatically (laughs) changed them for me. I guess I just wanted to really put the language into the book because I think a large part of this book is about 
learning another language and how that changes you, how you're a different person speaking English and then a different person speaking French or what have you. Um, and I was really interested in exploring that. And the title, obviously, Dreaming in French, is refers to that moment where you start to dream in another language and your subconscious has sort of fully integrated that language. And I just, I find that so inspiring. I find that so interesting that the brain can do that. And I, I, I love words. I love the English language. And so I really wanted to, you know, explore that sort of idea of another language entering your subconscious and sort of changing you as a person and how you might be a completely different person speaking French to who you might be speaking English. Yeah, I think that's something you do explore incredibly well in this book because Saskia, I believe, is a different person when she's speaking French than when she is speaking English. Absolutely, yeah. Speaking about the title of the book, I did wonder if that was your title for this novel or if it was something the publisher came up with. No, it was mine. And I really struggled to come up with a title for this book for a long time at the beginning. It was just called Il de Ray. And I think it wasn't until I, I came up with this title that I really was like, ah, oh, yeah, this this is what this book is about. It was that, and it was also working out that Felix was a salt worker um, and being able to incorporate that sort of theme of the salt and the, the sort of drawing out of impurities and the history of the island. There's sort of so many layers of when you're making a book and it feels like you start off with this very flimsy layer and then you build it and build it and build it, a bit like a milfeuille dessert, which is, yeah, many layers. And, and then at the end of the book, you look back and you've just created this many layered confection, but you think, gosh, how, how did all those layers come in? But I feel like that's the process. Yeah. Absolutely. I want to come back and talk about Felix and his work um, in a little bit. But you mentioned earlier that you weren't able to go to France to write this book because of COVID. And yet you have evoked the feeling of Ile de Ré, the location and the scenery so incredibly well. Can you talk to us about the challenges of writing about another country and culture from afar? Thank you. Yeah, it was really challenging. So I actually gave up on this book about a third of the way through. I just, I think I lost confidence because I was writing bits in French. I was writing it as a French woman for half the book in Simone's voice. And I just thought, who am I to be a French person? I, I've known pl plenty of French women, but there's just a cultural sort of context that if you're writing in Australia as an Australian person, you just naturally know that it's going to resonate and it feels very authentic. And so I really doubted that, even though Simone's voice was so strong from the start and so intriguing to me, I sort of lost faith. Um, and then again, the setting, I had lived there, but I thought, gosh, I haven't been there for like half a lifetime and I can't go because it was all very end of COVID. So I just, and then I think I'd gotten to a point where it was sort of the plot was getting a little um, you know, I just didn't know where it was going to go. So those three things colluded for me to just give up. And I remember I just walked away from it. I was so upset 
because you know I'd spent months and months trying to and I'd, I'd committed to the Alliance Francaise course and it was devastating but then I left it for quite a few weeks and it just kept coming back to me it even like haunted me in my dreams I kept having dreams about it and then my publisher read some of it and she just said it's working it's great I'm gonna buy it like keep going and then I got a residency at Varuna the the National Writers Centre in the Blue Mountains which is such a gift for writers in in the sense that it just gives you a week or two completely removed from the world in this beautiful setting where everything is just set up for you to be able to write and for you to be able to go into your imaginary world and it's it's almost like this place where it legitimizes what you do because sometimes as a writer it's so isolated and you're in your head and you can kind of lose the plot a bit and you go to this place where they say you are a writer you're meant to be doing this this is your work we respect it we support it we are having someone cook for you every night so you can write all day and not do any chores and so I think I wrote like you know 35,000 words in a week I just it just took off and so those things sort of saved this book so I'm really really grateful for that and in retrospect you think how could have I nearly given up on it but it is it's such a process and so yeah very grateful. Now the story is as much a love story between a woman and France as it is a romance in the other sense isn't it? It is yeah I mean it's a love letter to the French language and to the French culture but yeah there is definitely a romance element but it's a complicated romance and it was really interesting exploring that. I think all my books have got romance elements but you don't always know exactly what you're writing so when my early readers were like oh I loved the the romance part of this book and I, I sort of hadn't considered that that would be a key element I was sort of more focusing on everything else so that was lovely to kind of go okay this is this has got an element of that sort of romance in it Um, probably of all my books The Lost Summers of Driftwood has that and then this one probably and then the middle two there have been romance but it's probably not as strong I, I really loved exploring that And, you know, French men are pretty dreamy, aren't they? (laughs) Yes. Well, speaking of dreamy, yes, Felix was incredibly dreamy. And (laughs) you mentioned earlier that he was a salt worker or a saunier in French. Can you Mm. tell us a little bit about that and why that's important on Ile de Ré? So, yeah, there are all these salt marshes on the island. They're all sort of up one end and... um, the people that work the salt are called Le Saunier and they are salt miners. So they they have these salt basins essentially. The seawater comes in and then sort of bakes under the sun and then when the salt rises, the workers use these long sort of tools called louses to scra- literally scrape by hand this 
crystallized salt off the, the top and then they, they sit in little piles and it's very rare salt, very expensive and highly prized by the French but also around the world. So when I was living on the island, I was taught that you either sprinkle it over sort of your food at the end. It's not as much used as a to sort of salt your your food generally it's used as more like at the end to just as a little touch because it's very sort of delicate and light or you get a baguette beautiful ilderay butter and then you sprinkle the salt on top and it was just so yummy so yeah it's it's this huge tradition that was started by in the 16th century by cisterian monks and has been passed on through generation and generation down through families, a real um, sort of artisanal tradition. Yeah, I just loved that idea. It's so foreign to us as Australians that some, some sort of skill has been passed on over hundreds and hundreds of years and is still the same today as it was in the 1600s. I mean, it's so beautiful. And I just loved the idea of Felix with his sun-brown skin and his love and symbiosis with the natural world, which I think that you would have to have to, to be one of these Sauniers. But then at the same time, he's 20, you know, and he's living in the modern world and he has these aspirations. He wants to be an actor, even though he's never, you know, done anything like that. And just that you know, feeling of being divided between your family and this centuries-old tradition and then your own needs and wants. I thought that was an interesting character arc. Yeah, indeed. And I think each of your characters kind of suffers from that almost identity crisis in some ways. And Saskia certainly has a different career laid out for her than the one that she eventually followed. So I wondered if you could tell us a little bit more about Saskia what or who inspired her and was she in part based on you? I don't think so. I mean, she has elements of her that resonate with me for sure. But Saskia has had this tragedy in her life and that has sort of coloured the way that she looks at everything. So she's quite broken. I think I, I always have in my books these women who have these arcs where they are finding their strength and their bravery and that's what Saskia's journey is. She is a she's studying law because she's smart and she wants to please her parents but she actually is an artist she's a very talented sort of drawer and she ends up being a paper cut artist which is someone who cuts out um, paper with scissors or a scalpel into very fine beautiful designs and I just loved that idea because it suits her personality so well she's so fragile but there's something very beautiful about her as well she has a really good heart she loves her daughters but she her journey is really to confront what happened in the past and to find her strength through who she used to be as a 19-year-old when she bravely set off for the other side of the world by herself. And now she's in midlife where she's sort of just, she's a bit of a shell of herself. She's lost her passion for life. She's lost herself. She's in a difficult marriage. And I just think, you know, I think that's probably something that women can relate to. Interestingly, I think 
that has resonated with some people and I've got beautiful messages from some readers already and that's honestly the best part of writing a book when a character resonates and people feel the need to write to you and tell you and it's so beautiful. That leads quite nicely into my next question because Vanessa with all of your books you you deal with some heavy themes and in this book it's like verbal abuse and gaslighting living with anxiety mixed with softer themes of lost love and teen romance I wondered how did you how did you tackle these tougher issues and and how did you get inside Saskia's head for example yeah so I think with all my books I do go to some dark places and I think that's really necessary in order to tell a rich story with complicated characters who seem real and have real world problems and and also uh, you know that balanced with the light and the beauty it's the gray areas that interest me you can't just write a happy story it's not enough there's no beauty in that you can't have beauty without the darkness it's the balance of everything you know and with some of the themes that i explore i hope i've done it very sensitively But yeah, Saskia, as I said, is in a really difficult marriage with this man called Dylan. And I guess I drew on some of my own experience for that. I had been in a relationship that was emotionally abusive with coercive control. And I've also interviewed a lot of women who've been in that as well. I did a a really extensive feature article for White Ribbon Day. And I spoke to women who had sort of escape those relationships and the thing that returned again and again was people would say to them I don't understand why you didn't just leave him and I guess what I wanted to explore with this book is that it's so much more complicated than that because the abuser sort of whittles away the victim's self-esteem to such an extent that there is actually nothing left of their self-belief that's part of the whole process and it's just devastating and the gaslighting is when you know someone's intuition is just constantly undermined and so I think women can stop listening to that because they sort of lose lose that ability to trust themselves so that was an important thing for me to explore with this book and Saskia also has anxiety and that's something that I I sort of retreat and struggle with and I wanted to explore that as well and how that plays into her living life. Vanessa, you're a fan of the dual timeline as I am. What is it about this style that you love? And in writing the two different timelines, do you write them separately or do you write in a linear fashion? Yes, I love a dual timeline. (laughs) Um, All my books have them. I write very linearly because I feel like otherwise I'll get quite lost. I sort of almost write a book as I'm reading. And because I sort of am a bit of a pantser, so I plot a bit and also don't plot, it's almost like the story unravels naturally to me as I'm writing as it would reading a book. And I, it's kind of fun that way. But at the same time, in the edits, often you do have to rejig everything. And that can be really tricky playing with dual timelines because sometimes it just gets complicated you're dealing with often characters in the present and then characters in the past and it can be quite confusing and I'm not good at a spreadsheet and I'm not good at you know I don't have all the little post-it notes stuck on my wall and I don't use Scrivener and maybe that's something that I need to address at some point 
but I do I did with this book make a word document where I actually kind of went through and because every chapter has the present and then every chapter has le passé the past so it's very much 50 50 and it did get a bit sort of overwhelming and so I did make a a note of of where I was at I think with the dual timeline with my first book The Lost Summers of Driftwood I didn't have one initially even after they'd bought it they bought the book but I had a wonderful editor who suggested that I go back and make the characters children growing up on this in this holiday house on the river and I just loved doing that and it really opened up the story for me it also added a lot of words which was great because I tend I think because of my journalism background I write quite concisely so I never end up having to cut anything I always have to flesh out that's what my editing process always looks like so it's a great way to really flesh everything out thematically as well you get more of an idea about a character knowing them as a young person and um, in the present and there's also that nostalgic element and the idea of memory and I can see now in my fourth book that memory and nostalgia are really big themes that I keep returning to I don't know why I find them really interesting and I love reading books that explore them as well I just finished um Kate Morton's Homecoming um, and she is the queen of, of that. She does those things really well and Hannah Rochelle also. Speaking of, of Hannah, you've got blurb quotes for the book from Natasha and Hannah Richel and I know you love both of their writing. So I wanted to know how does it feel to have people like Natasha and Hannah speak so beautifully about your work? Such a humbling experience. It was so lovely of them. They were able to, well, they generously read this book off a PDF because of the sort of timeline involved, um, which was so kind of them. And I was just blown away by their beautiful reactions and words. And when, you know, when that happens, not really many people have read it except your first readers who are your friends. Obviously your publisher has, but it's like almost this beautiful cushion for when it goes out into the world saying, hey, these incredible writers think it's good. So <laughs> it really helps. It's really helped with the sort of anxiety and the nerves of putting it out there. And I'm so grateful for them. And I love both of their writing so much. Vanessa, if there was one thing you would like readers to take away from this book, what would it be? Oh, wow. I think, look, when I'm reading a book, my favourite type of book is when you're completely just you're immersed in the world. You know, when you're like just living your normal life and you keep thinking back to the book and thinking, oh, I just want to go back into that. I just want to pick up my book again and see what's happening with these characters. It's sort of like this magical other world that you have to go into. And I think that's what I would I would love that that I've created this this world and this story that people want to escape into. Yeah, well, you certainly did that for me. Thanks, Claudine. Uh, Vanessa, the last time we chatted, you gave us some insight into your writing routines and habits. So I wondered perhaps this time if you would tell us something that you learned about yourself as a writer whilst you were writing this book that you didn't know about yourself before. I think I learned that you can't always 
judge the process and 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 how it's going because I, I this was a really really difficult book to write and as I said I nearly gave up on it and some books are really easy to write and they come pretty naturally and so it's tempting to think that those books will be the better books and that people will love them more but I think this has taught me that that's not necessarily the case and so to just trust the difficult parts of the process trust yourself as a writer to keep going to be bold and brave and yeah just to, to keep writing and work really hard so what's next for you, Vanessa? Can you tell us a little bit about your next project? Yeah, so the next one is actually set on a lake because I've gone through all the topographies. I've done the river, I've done the mountains, I've done Tasmania, I've done the French island. So this one's set on a lake in northern New South Wales. I can't really say too much about it, but it's got a little bit of a speculative bent. It's about a woman who is trapped in her most liked Instagram post so it's a bit of an exploration of social media and I'm really excited about about this one it's got a little bit more of a psychological thriller element to it and then the one that I'm so I finished that but it's gonna you know not be coming out for you know a year 18 months whatever it'll be but then I'm starting to write another one and that one's set in France again so it's really nice to be able to just really mix things up because it keeps it interesting I'm a very eclectic reader and I feel like I'm a bit of an eclectic writer as well and so if listeners wanted to connect with you where can they find you I'm on Instagram at, at Vanessa McCausland and I'm on Facebook at uh, Vanessa McCausland author so I would love to hear from readers. That's probably my favourite part of the whole process. Vanessa, at the risk of sounding like a sycophant, I absolutely <laughs> loved this book and I didn't want it to end. Thank you for a beautiful read and for joining me on Talking Aussie Books once again today. Thank you so much, Claudine. It was so lovely to talk to you. That's a wrap, folks. If you enjoyed this podcast episode, please drop me a line via my webpage at claudinetonellis.com, via Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. Alternatively, consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Google Podcasts. Until next time, happy reading.